Hello and welcome back to the K-Files. I'm Sean, my pronouns are he and him, and I'm joined by Matt. Hello, uh, yes, I am Matt, my pronouns are also he and him. And Corey. Yes, I am Corey, my pronouns are they and them. Uh, after our brief leave of absence, we are back and I hope that we're going to have a very, very good episode for uh, everybody today. We are going to be talking about... This was the first essay of Mark Fisher's I ever read. We are talking about Terminator versus Avatar notes on accelerationism. Um, as we have, as is our habit, or this has been our habit in the past, we will, I think, if we start with just talking about general impressions, and then we'll just see where the conversation goes from there. I'm certain that we'll all have even more to say about this than we normally do. I know that I do. So yeah, I'm going to. Um, I'm going to throw this over to Corey first, actually. What were your initial initial impressions? Go. Yeah, I think I was mostly surprised at how how much I saw this essay tie into both the, the haunto- hauntological kind of topic that Marx touched on elsewhere and also, obviously, capitalist realism. Like, it really is a, a great kind of... Uh, summation of a, of some of uh, Mark Fisher's kind of main topics of discussion, I thought. So from that point of view, it was really interesting because um, it's quite a short essay, um, but he packs a lot in there. Matt? Um, yeah, I was really struck by how short it was, actually. It was sort of really long in my memory. Um, but yeah, I also sort of, I feel almost over-familiar with it. Um, and I'm actually really interested to hear more Corey, of what you mean by the hauntology thing, because I am always sort of feel like the link between those between the hauntology accelerationism is always overlooked, um, and and how that presents here is actually would be really interesting to get your take on. But um, yeah, really enjoyed this, um, and it's a good one to dive into. What, what about what about you, uh, Sean? Um, like I said, this was the very first Mark Fisher essay I read. And uh, it was part of my, as I've intimated before, my like my entry into all of this world was actually via Nick Land's writings, and this was part of the definitely contributed to sort of like the deprogramming I needed after mm. after exposing myself too much to the fangirl noumena, um, and it is it was a pleasure to return to it, and in my memory it had become an essay that was mostly to do with film oddly because of the if nothing else because of the name it being called terminator versus avatar and then of course it isn't it isn't really it isn't about film whatsoever it's about accelerationism and um what i really enjoyed about revisiting it was that sense of sort of like that initial encounter with with mark as a thinker and just seeing what his stuff is about like and the end we have um uh, I don't want to say the greatest hits because that's a bit reductive, but we just have like this is such a Mark Fisher essay, isn't it? You know, it's really lucid, it's really like dynamic and energetic and very clear as well, but not afraid of using technical language. Um, mm. It's great. It's just an absolutely fantastic bit of writing. And I'm certain we're going to have a lot to talk about when it comes to accelerationism uh, um, in our discussion. But what was great was just seeing this sort of like this restatement of like what this thing called left accelerationism actually is or was, depending on how alive a trajectory you consider it to be. Mm. And the fact he and and the fact that he does so, he does it in such like just a salient way of just saying, "No, this is what this is." 
like um because it has it is um although a lot of really interesting work has been done on you know going into different directions with it this is kind of like this is accelerationism without adjectives you know like this is the this is where a lot of i think a lot of like the thought around the subject like even if not chronologically it's the first it feels like this is a like a dynamite moment in like opening up this particular field i think that's what's so surprising about it in a lot of ways that i mean i remember sort of getting kickback about writing about market accelerationism and, and numerous times before um and sort of just taking him at his word here there's like that moment where he sort of says right that his his somewhat provocative uh conjectures that everyone is an accelerationist including mark fisher himself um but to say that these days you can is to sort of suggest well it, it it's it's become a term that is so convoluted that it's almost been wholly detached from him but he is always in this essay and there's a few others that maybe we'll read at some point in the future but he is always super sane and to the point about it which just make you wonder how things went so wrong <laughs> something in fact i want to say right away because although uh i am confident that our listeners will have listened will will have read this essay and will know kind of what we mean when we talk about accelerationism even if they have their own definitions that word has taken on some very very novel meanings now um in the last couple of years where it is like associated specifically with um atom waffen um battalion and zonenkrieg division and all of those horrible bunch uh that's not what this is this isn't like how <laughs> this is for peter book surprise hard pivot to fascism um <laughs> the um <laughs> that's not what's known that we're, we're talking and we will go into deeper definitions of this but this is like way before accelerationism was used in that like the parlance where it is now where it's associated very very readily in like i hate the word mainstream but in like mainstream consciousness with extreme white nationalism with um violent ethno-nationalist politics and so on that's not what this is this is something much more interesting and very very left-wing and um Yes. So that's not what this is. I did just want to clarify that in case people suddenly got a bit worried. And I think <laughs> but um Well the the I... essay is uh, the essay is ten years old at this point. So it's mm. been a lot of time for accelerationism itself uh, as an as an idea out in the the collective uh, consciousness to evolve and change and mutate and fork a lot, you know, let a thousand accelerationisms bloom. Mm. Um I might I'm going to suggest we begin by talking about. So, okay, like this essay does three things, in my like opinion of it, um, which I have here. So, like the three main things it does is it um, is it's as it's an attack on a particular kind of primitivist pseudo anti capitalism. Um, it's it grounds the 90s ccru accelerationist moment in a cultural and philosophical context uh it provides a summary of nick land's philosophy and and a critique of it and um it gives us a good like a very very good like propulsive uh shove um towards a new le- a new uh 
leftism of acceleration. Those are like the main things this essay is doing uh, that I can see. But I think we should probably start off with talking about why is this essay called Terminator versus Avatar when it's not about film? You know, this is not a work <laughs> of cultural criticism. This isn't like um, talking about Eyes Wide Shut, like I think like that was a, which was our last episode. Um, so uh, um, who wants to take that, actually? Because I... I I think Corey, didn't you say that you what you watched Avatar though, didn't you? As for, for the like, first time, for the first time, yeah. Yes. How is it? How is Mr. James? How does it hold up? Were you at uh, least seduced by the beauty of Pandora? <laughs> <laughs> Look, I will say that I was genuinely impressed by how good the CGI looked, like thirteen years later, especially when compared to the latest Marvel movie, which. They just look so bad. Uh, I saw a thread of people trashing um, the latest Spider-Man, and yeah, it's it's awful. <laughs> just the, the, like single frames of that. Just it doesn't look so bad when it's in motion, but single frames of it are just so bad. Where because you know with the MCU they're farming it out to the lowest bidder, whereas James Cameron is someone who throughout his entire career has been very uh, invested in finding like the cutting edge of um special effects for his films so special effects wise cgi wise it looks amazing still but you know the story is what it is and what it is is very fucking hollow (laughs) yeah i saw it when it first came out i didn't see it in imax or anything but i did see it in 3d because this was like part of the whole thing with this film was it was part of the 3d cinematic moment and we won't spend too long talking about this because this is not the subject of the essay but i saw it like i was a teenager and i saw it and i was one of those people who was like seduced by the beauty of pandora for sort of like about a solid week afterwards of feeling sort of like weirdly dislocated by how fucking dreary the, the bloody world is in this country uh in comparison in comparison with the lush uh the lush fecund verdantity of pandora that's not a word but yeah uh i did however a couple of nights ago rewatch james cameron's terminator which mm. is a brilliant film and it was very good fun watching it um yeah and again this like this essay is not about this essay is not about cinema but i really like it when you watch an action film which is actually really well paced and sort of like tells the story in a way that's actually very good and efficient and like isn't just people lecturing you and so on like there's loads of action and things happening and it's not that long it's great terminator's a good film so that's my hot take yeah, if uh, you need an excuse to watch or rewatch it we are giving you that excuse terminator <laughs> is a good film <laughs> But that's the pennies only just dropped for me that they were both James Cameron films. Yes, weird, mm. isn't it? Like that's wild. I guess because I guess that's I mean that's the, I guess that's what Corey you're sort of picking up on in a way where you because um, that's really strange. I mean I haven't rewatched it, um, but uh, that it's that this thirteen year old film still holds up and seems even somehow sort of more of the it feels like the future that was promised that sort of not been standardised in contemporary film feels like sort of a, a great example of what Mark's kind of using it to demonstrate, right? Because um, he says something in here about, like, the... It kind of becomes representative of, of visually being futuristic, but actually narratively having wholly given up on the future or being, you know, we can say it's it's visually very quote-unquote progressive um but narratively wholly reactionary Hmm. yeah it's um i mean the thing is like in terms of um 
uh, in terms of like the originality of the stories, actually, I think, and, and again, this isn't actually what this essay is about, but I want to talk about film for a minute. The both of them are essentially like just like very heavily plagiarized, like Terminator. <laughs> the um, like shortly after its release, um, Harlan Ellison like said, "I really like this film. It's very good. Blew my socks off." But you do need to credit me because I know you did plagiarize this from from my work, <laughs> and they, which they did then do. They did put. I don't know if he ever got any money for it or if he ever chased money for it. But in the credits, they did sort of like rapidly insert sort of like acknowledgements to the works of Harlan Ellison uh, in this uh, um, because yeah, it is like just lifted sort of like plot elements lifted wholesale from episodes of the Outer Limits he wrote. And of course, the thing is with like um, Avatar, like I didn't feel any need to rewatch it. Because, like, I mean, I just don't in general, but also because, like, I read the word for world is forest last year, which is just mm. that it is just the same, is just it is Avatar. Only I know that sort of like it's like regarded as like one of Le Guin's uh, weaker works, but it is still sort of like a good novella, like, um, by, by I think anyone's standards, even if it is, even if she did sort of like acknowledge it, you know, it isn't especially deep and there's very, very obvious messaging in it, but it's still the nurse of the Gwyn book, so which just automatically means it is quite good. Um, <laughs> there's feel like generous reference points too. I remember the main meme I remember from when it came out was just that it's Pocahontas with aliens, it's Pocahontas, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so. The reason why we, the reason why this essay is called Terminator versus Avatar. I mean, there's different reasons for this, but initially, but the one of the big ones is what's already mentioned that one of the targets of this essay is a certain kind of like primitive, primitivist pseudo anti capitalism, and because there was a great deal of. Because the thing with Avatar, so like infamously, it's a film that left virtually virtually no cultural impression, which is something people often say about it. And I'm wondering how true that really is. I mean, it certainly didn't like have as big a cultural splash as, a film, as another James Cameron film like Titanic did. Uh, no pun intended there. Which is again sort of like actually sort of like a very good is like I mean, say a popcorn romance, but it's still a p- pretty good time if you just want to switch off switch off and watch like a quite nicely made, well paced film. Um, uh, but yeah, the thing. But in terms of like f- f- what impact it did have on people, like the kind of emotions it tended to inspire, was around a kind of um, sort of like a valorization of what we would largely call primitive or indeed indigenous um, lifestyles and community, uh, as opposed to technological civilization. Um, because the, uh, I'm not going to summarise the plot of Avatar, because we're just going to assume people roughly know it, but it's about, you know, this moon in Alpha Centauri, which is like a lush, verdant rainforest uh, inhabited by race of aliens called the Na'vi, who live, who are like modelled, somewhat modelled on uh, indigenous American communities in like a very broad sense, you know, so like very much an idea of sort of like this is what indigenous looks like, you know, um, without it trying to go for a like more specific like or, or accurate cultural signifiers than that. And it is very clean cut sort of like humans are bad because of technology and metal and Vanavi are good because they have you know, wood and woven fabrics and all of that and our friends with the animals and thank them for their lives and they slaughter them and eat fruit and vegetables and all of that and that's what it that's what it's about but the reason why this is like this is a pseudo anti-capitalism 
is because like the very what what Fisher points out here, and he also points this out in another essay, a sh- much shorter essay, which is in, in the K-Punk anthology called. Um, Oh god, what was it called? They've killed their they killed their mother, uh Avatar's ideological symptom. Um which I know, Corey, you read for this as well, and which I read as yeah. well. Where the thing is this isn't anti capitalism, this is a kind of this is like an anti tech anti technology, but not anti capitalism. Because it doesn't it isn't at any point reckoning with productive forces or with how production and the economic and social orders are actually configured what the relations of production are what the exploitative relations are except in this very in this manichian sense of everything technological is bad because it is not because of the circumstances of its production but because its technology and technology is soulless literally soulless because the moon has a kind of spirit to it a gut literally a, a psychic gaia spirit to it which can psychically telepathically connects all living creatures uh together and so this literally soulless technology as opposed to um living vitalistic um uh natural community uh organic community and this and that's the thing. So this is why it, there's no sense in which it can be called a real anti-capitalism because it is never reckoning with capitalism. It's reckoning with technology taken as a kind of independent, for, independent, self-standing, negative, uh, destructive force. But then there's the strange paradox of it, right? Where, like, it's I think that's kind of what Mark alludes to when he talks about how uh, it's almost like Avatar is a complete inversion of terminator almost so you have this person who goes back as if the the sort of male protagonist of um avatar is sort of it's a, it's sort of the films presented from arnold schwarzenegger's point of view in t2 he's gone back and he's now there to sort of help the well aren't so much the natives in terminator but maybe in a way they are um mm. a kind of more primitive Timeline version natives. of the society that he knows yeah exactly yeah temporal natives um but Mark says that, right, that in Avatar, we, or in its world anyway, its worldview, we only play at being inner primitives by virtue of cinematic proto-VR technology, whose very existence presupposes the destruction of the organic idol of Pandora. So it's anti-technology, whilst at the same time sort of not remotely questioning the fact that it's the technology itself that allows its... The, the use of technology presupposes the anti-technological stance if that makes sense. Yes. Mm. Which is yeah. very he, bizarre. Because he's only... Because, like, the human beings are only able to get there through to, to Pandora because they have spaceships. He's only able to interact with his community because of the, like, techno-telepathic mechanism of the Avatar itself, which is a genetically engineered, vat-grown RV body his mind is trans-broadcast into. Although the film does end with him literally magically having his soul transferred into the Avatar body out of his uh, frail human body. But the... um, But yeah, but... Again, this is the thing, though, that that it's... um, Not only is it... It doesn't... I mean, the thing is, the film isn't trying to do this because it is just trying to present this very, very simple Manichaean story, which it does do. But it's the fact that what it... And the reason why the other essay is subtitled, you know, sort of avatars and ideological symptom is because 
this is very reflective of actual real world political attitudes that people have when it comes to technology and science and the artificial being treated as singular qualities which have no like there's nothing internal to them there's no structural questions to them it's just technology is bad uh and and that and the thing with that is that that is that is where fascism comes from you know this is or at least one of the one of the symptoms of fascism is this insistence on the absolute superiority and purity of the organic community of of the organic natural wholesome way of life and that is something that um what we've seen over you know the course of the pandemic is how the narratives of bodily purity and natural purity being mobilized against vaccinations and a similar and you know this is something a lot of people commented on that there's a kernel of truth to a lot of the anxiety people had around vaccination because or and that kernel being a recognition that um this is being produced for a profit by massive companies uh and and so on who have received enormous sums of money from the government uh, in order to produce this thing um regardless of its efficacy um you know that that in of itself that is an important question but it's a, a question about how we structure our world how we structure our economy how we structure our health care um, and the and the intercessions of these, those are very very important questions to ask. But it's almost like that old adage that um, anti-Semitism is the fool's is the is the idiot socialism or the or the, or the fool's socialism, you know, sort of like that. Going from that recognition that things are wrong, like it shouldn't be like this, surely, but then taking it in the consp- in, in making a conspiratorial gesture of insisting, well, that means the vaccine is fake, or that means that there's actually like a, a sinister cabal that runs the economy and makes it this way, rather than these being it questions about almost inhuman structures that we are subjected to, where there aren't puppet masters at any point. This is mechanisms of behaviour. Uh, and mechanisms of relation and how but again the and but there's this image or this idea or ideal of organicism and nature which again is taken as a sing are taken as singular qualities in the same way that technology is taken as a singular quality modernity is taken as a singular quality which just has a simple plain moral value of either good or evil and the organic the natural are 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 regarding these narratives as simply purely uh and uncomplicatedly good that answer which is why there's nothing like again this is a pseudo anti-capitalism because it is no anti-capitalism whatsoever it is not wrestling with questions of the economic order or productive relationships it's a simple again i've used this word a lot it's a simple manichian divide between good because it's good and evil because it's evil um which because there's a, is, sorry yeah no just, just and i'll let other yeah, people no. speak in the moment sorry but yeah sorry. the um <laughs> but the uh but yeah because there's a line where they say something like um oh the, there's no green on their world it's all gray now because they killed their mother but um this is the and you know this is precisely the thing but sort of like the problem the problem there being the simple matter of of the grayness you know with no 
interrogation as to sort of like what the greatness means and the complete disregard of the fact that as an of the green of the dollar being still circulating in the in these gray environments and still be in fact being the motive force behind them rather than the grayness of technology and modernity just being this thing that condenses out of the air and is just plainly bad like a, like 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 a medieval miasma uh matt you were trying to say something there. yeah no sorry i mean i just yeah i guess because it's it just makes me think that it's and then maybe this gets us into other parts of the text too though i don't want to jump too far ahead um uh, before cory you've had your say of course but um um it's it, i guess it's that sense that this this framing of good and evil is a it's a false dichotomy right it's the 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 and the thing where you made the example of anti-semitism is a really great example right it's it's a it's an othering or a scapegoating that presents or puts all of your critiques in an outcrop that's somehow other to society um which is very convenient and allows you to ignore the question of how the problems that you see in this outcrop um are actually totalizing they're everywhere um but this idea of escape that you can somehow get out and go to this other outside place be it nature or wherever else and 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 have a different existence is wholly untrue it's a pipe dream um but how it's dependent on that um i mean i feel like that's kind of maybe why mark uses the example and maybe sets up the the example of terminator 2 which i think is a takes a wholly different approach but that's maybe for next (laughs) (laughs) um well yeah just on that same quote that um that matt read before about you know the, the we could only play it at, at being in a, prim, in a primitive is by virtue of cinematic proto VR technology etc. It um it reminded me of an article I read uh, in the past couple of years maybe even uh, pre pandemic because of the subject matter but it was about how um people were flocking to like particular parts of certain national parks uh, to capture their own version of like a photo that they saw on Instagram. So one one of the examples they used was um, it was like a log out over the water of a lake with like a really beautiful backdrop of mountains, like snow-capped mountains and that sort of thing. Um, and the, the writer of the article was explaining how just out of the frame were just lines and lines of people like just waiting for their go to walk out on this on this log, on this most photographed log in the world, and get their own version of this photo taken. It's like the like striving for this this realness as represented by nature, um, that's away from all the signifiers of modernity. Except the whole experience was like kind of inspired by um, you know social media technology um, and created for that same technology. Um, so that just really, yeah, that made me think that that was a very kind of uh, current take on the same thing that Mark's talking about here. Yes, and because th- these, because the thing is, you know, like we mentioned VR here, and in the context of the film, you know, sort of like like Pandora is accessible through advanced space travel and through advanced genetic technology and mind transfer and so on. But in in real terms, in real concrete terms. You know, Pandora does not exist. It is make believe. It is a product, and it is it is it is it, like that film exists to make money for a studio. It exists 
like all of the f- it's only exists because of the enormous amount of labor that was put into it because of computer technology because all of those gray silicon boxes are humming away generating heat and sucking in electricity that's the only reason these fantasies that like the fantasy of pandora exists at all is because of the vast technological substrate of of the hollywood entertainment industry uh of the thousands and thousands of thousands of work hours that are put into it of just people doing things on computers to make it happen um and and, so sorry yeah, and, really and the same with, <laughs> and the same with, um, and the same with what you were saying there, Corey. That that um, you know, the log becomes this, uh, the log in the mountains or whatever. The, that view becomes like a, a perfect signifier of natural authenticity. But it, ex- but our we know about it because you know we all hold in our hands little mini supercomputers that are there's nothing you know, nothing of nature to them according to these sort of like according to these definitions um that present present an aestheticized aestheticized algorithm algorithmized um idyll for our consumption uh which then becomes a site to tra- to to go to in order to have that experience it reminds me of a remark from um the question concerning technology by Heidegger, which um, I, I, I will say, sort of like, is is the smart man's version of the Pandora thing is how I, <laughs> is how I've really described because because like Heidegger is like his relationship with technology is far more complicated than initially you'd think from sort of like a, a simple summary of it. It is more co- he is he doesn't have this Manichaean view of it, um, or at least not on the generous reading. But anyway, there's a line from him when he's talking about uh, the Rhine and saying that sort of like despite the fact. Like I said, you might tell me that despite the fact there's a hydroelectric plant on the Rhine now, it is still the same river that inspired Holden into hymns, to his hymns. And he says, but the thing is, no, it's not, because it's the Rhine for as much as it is a part of like of a German national tourism industry. It's a That is what the Rhine is to go to. And... It's just the same with the log and the and the and uh, the mountainous rural idyll as well. Sort of like, it's not a place of um, you know virgin nature to be sort of like um, uh, solemnly experienced in its beauty. It's part of the well, it's part of the influencer industry, isn't it? And um, yeah, um, Matt. Again, I think you had something to say. Yeah, it, it just reminds me that I guess the. I'm not sure if either of you remember this, but the one thing that I remember so much from when the Avatar first came out was this sort of slight moral panic around its uh, like effective fallout. Um, where people would just, like complain of being really depressed after seeing it because they had that sort of innate awareness that this beautiful outcrop that they'd been sort of shown on an enormous screen in glorious 3D and CGI didn't exist. Um so the sort of the 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 fact that this trying to almost emphasize that we need to get out and go back to nature only sort of drove home the fact that no such place exists and that just compounds the melancholy well a similar um uh, criticisms have been leveled at like David Attenborough and similar for um like their representations of the natural world without like um often without kind of consideration for the damage that we're doing to it. it's like you know just look I at all these amazing something animals sinister about <laughs> <laughs> yeah just like the idea that you know all this beautiful nature is still out there without recognizing that we're polluting the shit out of this planet and 
so many of these animals are at risk through like deforestation, climate change, etc. Um, so yeah, I think that is also. I think you might have, people had that experience with Pandora back in the day, and I think you could have the same experience now watching, you know, an Attenborough movie on IMAX. Walk outside into the city and just be like, oh, actually, what what nature there is left is very far away and being, you know, rapidly depleted. Hmm. I think that we should move deeper onto the actual meat of the essay. Now we've talked about films uh, for a bit. Uh, films are good, aren't they? Um, yeah. <laughs> So, um, if we don't have any objections, maybe maybe we could sort of like move our discussion through sort of like these these like rough points that I think he is going through here. So, like like after sort of like discussing this, you know, sort of like the pseudo anti capitalism of um, of of the primitivist like pre modernist returnism of uh, of Hollywood of, of Hollywood cinema. So we move on to sort of talking about the nineties accelerationist thing. We're talking about CCRU, we're talking about Nietzsche, we're talking about Leotard, uh we're talking about Nick Land and so on. And I think something that is because actually something we sh- we haven't mentioned is that this essay begins with a lengthy quote from Leotard um i won't read i wish i um i'm actually no, not go gonna on, read Sean. give oh, us your best I? leotard <laughs> oh right it is fun isn't it okay why political intellectuals do you incline towards the proletariat in commiseration for what i realize that a proletarian would hate you you have no hatred because you are bourgeois privilege smooth skin types but also because you dare not say the only important thing there is to say that one can enjoy swallowing the shit of capital its materials its metal bars its polystyrene its books its sausage pates swallowing tons of it till you burst and because instead of saying this which is also what happens in the desires of those who work with their hands asses and heads Ah, you become a leader of men. What a leader of pimps. You lean forward and divulge. Ah, but that's alienation. It isn't pretty. Hang on. We'll save you from it. We will work to liberate you from this wicked wicked affection for servitude. We will give you dignity. And in this way, you situate yourselves on the most despicable side, the moralistic side, where you desire that our capitalised desires be totally ignored, brought to a standstill. You are like priests with sinners. Our servile intensities frighten you you have to tell yourselves how much they must suffer to endure that and of course we suffer we've capitalized but this does not mean that we do not enjoy nor that what you think you can offer us as a remedy for what does not disgust us even more we abhor therapeutics and it's vaseline we prefer to burst under the quantitative excesses that you judge the most stupid and don't wait for our spontaneity to rise up and revolt either Whew. Boy, howdy! Um, <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's a, it's it's that is whether like, you agree with it or not. It's just like amazing writing. <laughs> yeah. I know, and that's such an important point here because something that uh, Mark says here about Leotard, about Deleuze and Guattari, and very importantly about Nick Land is these are really really fun to read, and that is important. That is an important thing to grasp about them because he he go he goes on to say here and and he he's quoting or paraphrasing uh, Slavoj Žižek here that the actual like if you take Nietzsche the actual philosophical content of Nietzsche's ideas are all assimilable into modern 
philosophical departments at universities basically like um, his relativism or perspectivism his views on like the contingency of value and so on these are all things that are not controversial opinions to encounter at a, at a university philosophy department the thing that is hasn't been assimilated and is inassimilable for the university or for the academy in Nietzsche is how Nietzsche writes is his stylism his the explosivity of his style um its dynamism and that's the thing that when when one reads Nietzsche for the first time um it's difficult to not want to read him out loud and when I was a student I used to do that like when I was um when we would when I when we did our Nietzsche course sort of like I'm not sure I'm going to say that my fellow students asked me to read Nietzsche rather than me reading Nietzsche at them when we had our study <laughs> sessions but the thing is like he it is like an irresistible just energy to him uh that just is and and you know again uncontroversial point Nietzsche quite a good writer uh and that is the often the thing that is so makes his ideas so one of the things that makes his ideas so maybe so dangerous in a certain sense is because he just conveys this with such passion and such spirit and it's the same thing with when you read Nick Land, when you read Meltdown, or better yet, if you listen to the Meltdown Jungle remix um, that uh, that they put out um, back in the day, which you can get on SoundCloud and YouTube, um, is very effective in that way. It is it 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 is like it does feel like putting your finger on like a live wire um there is a drive to it uh, an ambition a passion not in like an emotive authenticity but just like especially not with land because the whole thing with land is the inhumanness of it but it there is something that drives you and carries you through with his writings which is can be very very seductive and very very powerful and what's and when i said you know sort of like he he places CCRU and land in a kind of actual sort of like cultural, philosophical, historical context. What I mean by that is he says that land, the Nick land of the 90s, is via way of like Leotard and Deleuze and Guattari is an inheritor of Nietzsche in that regard, uh, of just understanding that if you want to do real philosophy, like a real philosophy that isn't just about as he says, you know, sort of like scoring points at the bar, you know, over a glass of wine or and getting the paper out, but an actual makes some kind of actual real change to how the world is working, then you can't write like an academic. You have to write like Nietzsche because Nietzsche has, because like if you write like Nietzsche, then you do have the power to mobilize people or to at least inspire people to action. Um, and it's also worth, and of, again, although I would assume, uh, on the part of our listeners, at least some awareness of the fact that Nick Land has gone in a particular trajectory. Like, um, but like, uh, although I think, and maybe this is something we'll discuss deeply at, at some point, although I think there are seeds of where Nick Land ended up in his writings of the 90s, we are talking about Nick Land before he became like racist Brexit dad on Twitter. Um, you know, like, yeah like like this is the thing all the stuff i'm saying here i'm talking about sort of like the stuff in fang's doom and then the stuff in the ccru books which are like very like they are just fascinating works they are 
in like they are energetic and seductive and there is an inspirational quality to them in that regard um because there's just so much force in his writing in the same and it is comparable i think i don't think it's an exaggeration to say it is comparable with nietzsche in terms of its power um and yeah uh, what do what does everybody else think well i mean i think the thing that you've touched on is is kind of what i mean it's also a great way of sort of putting the with a line in the sand is for lands then and lands now and all the rest of it that i think what leotard does so well at least particularly in that the chapter that that quotes from that if if anyone's tried to read that book sort of front to back it's impossible for someone who's sort of so uh, so rejects academic discourse it's a bloody hard book to get through um but that chapter a desire named marx is so lucid um but it confronts you with that impasse um it it you can sort of be revolted by what he's suggesting and enjoy it nonetheless which is isn't that precisely the point he's making about capitalism um but I guess that's the thing where I think people struggle to pinpoint where land lost his way. But I think it's kind of it was a gradual process, but precisely in that he became dull. He became your drunken uncle, your racist drunken uncle at the like you know the sort of Christmas Eve pub drinks. It's it's all too familiar and all too sort of mind numbing. Because um, I want to, you could say that it's disgusting. You could be all out sort of just denounce it but even then I think he'd probably enjoy the fact that he could say well you know having that sort of passionate revolt against him is part of his power I think the problem is he's lost that completely it's not even seductively disgusting it's just boring um because there is a line in this essay where he, where yeah. Mark says that uh no Nick Land is the antagonist that the left needs and again sort of like at, when he wrote this, there was a lot of truth to that. Definitely not now. There is, um, you know, I mean, this is that other people have commented on this, sort of like who are more qualified to talk about it. But the fact that you know, sort of with Nick Land, we have someone who like very firmly believes that sort of like cognition is going to completely like leave behind the human subject in its entirety and become pure like heat and silicon and like pico nanotechnology but he's also really concerned about um trans women competing in sporting events you know it's it's um it's just like this is the, you know they've he, he he's a dad on the internet <laughs> you know uh is the thing this well on on that um point like there was a quote from um nick land in there that i like i kind of took out um he said a migration of cognition out into the emerging planetary technosentience reservoir into dehumanized landscapes, emptied spaces where human culture will be dissolved. And it's like, you can kind of see how, like, from a different thinker, that same sort of, like, uh, essence could be a good thing. Like, the dissolution of the hyper-individualist culture that we've built and embracing something collective, except that with Nick Land, like... Even back then, I, I just kind of feel like there's a, kind of an anti-human current to his thinking. So to me, it's like it's completely unsurprising that um, like he's been latched onto by all these like so-called you know intellectual dark web thinkers because there's also an anti-human streak to so much of that like you know reactionary or neo-reactionary thought. Um, so yeah, it's like with Nick Land, I think you like he does. There is power 
to his writing and there is like interesting ideas in amongst it but you've really got to like pick through just the the kind of i don't know the yeah the i guess anti-human cruelty is the only way i, I can like think of how to how to just dis- describe it I, I think that's kind of the strange thing about it, in a way like, at least contextualizing this essay i guess in its broader so it's this essay is found in the accelerationist reader accelerates the ergonomic put out in 2014 um and there are a few points even here beyond <clears throat> mark's own assessment of land he kind of makes a point of emphasizing that at this time there hasn't really been a broader one no one's kind of had anything to say about him um and i think it's all almost it's worth stressing that no one knew really outside of a very small sort of in-group knew who nick land was until Fang Newman came out and then later became a meme. But that also is kind of maybe the, you know, the, the, there was a certain, it's, it's almost as if the, the writings then were a complete future shock. And I think Mark says that, right? It's like a, it's like cyberpunk fiction. And I think that's definitely, you can see the power of it in that. Um, but it's not so fictional any longer. When you have this, yeah, it's adopted, or if not adopted, quite directly but um what was seen as a kind of provocative vision of the future then becomes this kind of mundane silicon valley bro you know dream for the present almost um that it's almost now a little bit too in within grasp maybe or uh, but then again yeah just but not in the sort of explosive sense that this is suggesting that it's could or should be as if to say that that the the revolt that we might feel from reading these land these writings lands writings at least now it, it, it's just totally displaced but it's I'm, I'm stumbling here because it's also worth noting that you know 2014 when this came out isn't that long ago it's less than 10 <laughs> years ago um and i guess it's i always i mean well 10 years feels like a long time eight years feels like a long time but that's this is only two years before trump and then what's that? Two couple of years out from the pandemic, and the last two years have been a write-off anyway. So there's a real sense that this, well, the sort of negative of accelerationism, or at least uh, an accelerated cultural sphere, um, is that you know, despite land having now been so, it was in his. I guess what I'm saying is it was in his lack of his unknown nature that that. Um, power sort of was retained and now like so many things he's all too visible and therefore you know like the man behind the curtain is just there's 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 any shock has been totally denuded but the question then is well you know what space is there what 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 would a a Nietzsche or a Bataille or a Nickland for now look like because it's neither of those three but you know that it's it's almost as if that we can denounce it, but that should always lead to the question of what what would that what would that look like? Now? What is that negative image that can reflect on now? I mean, that's a question that's probably not really relevant here, but it's I think it's worth mentioning, if only because it's a core sort of um, stake of an accelerationist project um, that should you know we should be aware of when and how these things become old hat and actually pivot from that to question and, you know, try and 
if not give an image to, at least try and figure out, you know, that, that Deleuze line, if it's not about worrying or hoping for the best, but picking up new weapons, we should worry less about Nick Land and look for the <laughs> new weapons. Yeah, I think what, what I will do, though, is I do want to read um, a passage here, which, to summarise what Nick Land's philosophy was at the time, and still is, like this is, I think this is still broadly the content at the heart of his philosophy. Uh, in a nutshell, Deleuze and Guattari's machinic desire, remorselessly stripped of all Bersonian vitalism, and made backwards compatible with Freud's death drive and Schopenhauer's will. The Hegelian Marxist motor of history is then transplanted into this pulsional nihilism. The idiotic autonomic will, no longer circulating on the spot, but upgraded into a drive, and guided by a quasi-teleological artificial, artificial intelligence attractor that draws terrestrial history over a series of intensive thresholds but have no eschatological point of consummation, and they reach empirical termination only contingently if and when its material substrate burns out. This is Hegelian Marxist historical materialism inverted. Capital will not be ultimately unmasked as exploited labour power, but rather humans are the meat puppet of capital. Their identities and self-understandings are simulations that can and will be ultimate, which can and will be ultimately sloughed off. And um, this is why, and hence terminates. So, you know, hence the other, the other. Um, the other ghoul in the title of this um because just not not in terms of the plot of the films sort of but just the image of the flesh pulled off of arnie's skull or burned off of arnie's skull revealing the grinning chrome um mechanic robot face underneath the flesh this is the image of of capital uh that 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 um is condensed at the heart of Nick Land's philosophy that is nothing to do with human beings and with relations of production, anything like that. It is an inhuman drive, a directionless drive. It's like it's like Azathoth, right? You know, in Lovecraft, sort of like, you know, Azathoth is the blind idiot god that endlessly produces and makes and is the source of all things, but there's no will to or no intellect behind the wheel this is just drive onwards uh and it's a drive that began before human beings existed it's 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 almost just like a consequence of it's almost just like a consequence of the nature of chemical compounds you know just on a massive scale uh to just pus- pushing onwards into greater and greater intensity into greater heat uh and movement um it's interesting, though, that, that um, Fisher says like it's made backwards compatible with the Freudian death drive, because the, the thing is, if you've read Beyond the Pleasure Principle, the death drive is not is not a propulsion for well, for Freud at least, it's not a propulsion forwards, it's a propulsion backwards, it's, retro, well, it's anti-propulsion, it's the retrograde motion towards a more primitive state, to more primitive prior states, that ultimately culminates in the return of the organic into the inorganic in death, the ultimate return to the prior state, to our own non-existence. Um, although I don't think that's that's, that's what's meant here. I think it's probably more of the Laconian thing about repetition, isn't it? But, and again, there's, there's this line here which you've already quoted, that uh, this is quite deliberately theory of cyberpunk fiction. And again, when we read when we read Land from this, from this point, like, um, it does often feel like a bit more like what... Well, I don't say a bit more like, because this is what we are. We are reading science fiction horror with like a deep philosophical substrate to it 
in a sense you know this is like it's knowingly using knowingly openly uses fiction it uses the the pace and like the patter almost of horror uh that kind of like intense battering of uh, adjectives you know um but this is the prop uh, but um again to carry on sort of like delving into the actual sort of like philosophy that's at work here what fisher points out though about mark nicklin's philosophy very simply is that it is is that it's wrong like that this like he that i'm not going to so go so far as to say that like this is a misreading of Deleuze and Guattari because i don't think nick has misread Deleuze and Guattari but this is not it's not what Deleuze and Guattari say at least but and it's and which i and i don't think he's saying this is what that what what this is what Deleuze and Guattari is saying but um the the challenge that like the the critique that fisher offers or presents to nick land is nick land associates capitalism with schizophrenia um or rather holds them to be identical and for deleuze and guattari when we talk about as we discussed in you know prior podcast schizophrenia is the is kind of like a it was complicated but you know it's the state of like the dissolution of the codes of the territories right it's just this kind of pure joyous like orgasmic flux of being where you are can become anything you're becoming you become pure becoming you are like a total untethering from all repression all restriction and all negative emotion into just sheer sort of like movement across the universe almost it's great like it's it, it sounds fun i want some of that of a weekend um but capitalism isn't that and nick land writes as if it is that it is this although like i don't think he has an especially optimistic view of what sort of like the total decomposition of the human subject would be he does still think that's what capitalism is going to do but what that isn't what deleuze and Guattari say and what because the deterritorializing aspects of capitalism always go alongside the countervailing tendency of reterritorialization, and this is not an incidental feature of capitalism. It needs the reterritorializing um, function in order to operate, because we go from we go from the village to the nuclear family. You know that is not a movement. You know, and this is a reterritorialization and a recoding, which does necessarily involve a decoding and a deterritorialization of the prior social and economic and libidinal forms but it's not doing so in order to open us out to explode us to just like joyous intensities it's doing so so it can reformulate that in a way that's more productive um that we're able to better access individual labor power it is not in itself it's n- that's what that's what's going on here which is why it can't ever reach the terminator moment of the skin being pulled back revealing the cybernetic like death drive un- underneath because that isn't capitalism capitalism like and this is what fisher points out what we've seen is just more and more kitsch that's the direction we've gone in when it comes to sort of like how just how things are sold to us it's just even it's even more like humanistic in a weird sense or more individualistic and hedonistic like every advert for mobile phones is just sort of like heterosexual family moments being recorded on cameras or like sexy young things in their 20s going out and having authentic cultural experiences in different parts of the world you know like none of this is like the anti-human misanthropic cyber capitalism of nick land like it's, it's the opposite of that like it, it's it's a massive re-entrenchment of of bourgeois individualism 
And I think a really good example of this is like how we have like we've just returned to the cults of robber barons, you know, like uh, with, with like with like Elon Musk and so on and Jeff Bezos, who are like household names, like just very recognizable um, people, you know, the, the wealthiest people on the entire planet who control enormous numbers of like of of not only not only enormous amounts of resources, but also just people's actual functional lives and labor power, and they're just guys they're just like disgusting human beings like the rest of us you know who like and and that's actually one of the sort of like the one of the most unedifying moments of sort of like nick land's like twitter presence remember was how happy uh, he was happily tweeting sort of like like um was like what was it um like honored to the most fecund house of musk when sort of like um he had that baby with with grimes and it's like jesus christ dude you know i'm sorry elon's not gonna sleep with you you know like um and this and, and all of us being because capitalism isn't what nick land thought it was or thinks it is it isn't this alien invasion from the future you know which is not how he describes it it's not the ai constructing itself out of its uh, you know backwards retro constructing itself out of enemy territory you know sort of like again just like get it's just it's just horrible discussing people and structures and relations of production that's what it is and there's an extent to which this like what land is doing here is he's using mystificatory sort of animistic language to talk about something which is actually like quite graspable according to sort of like you know human cognitive faculties is not mysterious which isn't to say i think it's easy to it's easy to get but you know it, it isn't this mystery and there's a reason why he's ended up so firmly on the side of capital and so firmly on the side of reaction as well um i do think there is this sense in it though that <clears throat> i mean i don't I, I think i disagree that he kind of gets this understanding of capitalism wrong because that's where i think it's the same with Toulouse and Guattari and even with Marx and others where it's not to say that um capitalism can't be defined sort of sociologically by its structures and the individuals that hold all the power but it's a question of how those the, the, the sort of strange indeterminate relate well indeterminate relations of power um where uh you know which comes first, the structures or the impersonal forces that drive the structures? Um, uh, you know how how do how do impersonal structures how do impersonal forces create structures? How do structures then create more impersonal forces? That's the kind of I think maybe narcissistic feedback loop that um, Dulles and Guattari identify in talking about capitalism and desire, and it's the same that <clears throat> Mark Fisher especially sort of hones in on. But I guess it's how um, it's. I think maybe how it fits into Marx's critique is that um, what Land does is that he wholly, sort of even performatively, sort of gives over agency to those impersonal forces, um, as if to sort of like a gleeful Lovecraftian protagonist who just lets himself sort of bathe in the supposedly bathe in whatever it is um without any kind of assertion of his own agency or 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 how he plays into those same structures you know he's kind of just let him, he, at first he's fascinated by how we're logs in the waves and then he's just impotently a log in the waves um and that's sort of fisher's point elsewhere like in capitalist realism the sort of reflexive impotence um 
the land's initial negativity is that, you know, things are awful and they could get even worse. And that kind of future shock, that kind of the, the, the sort of accelerative language of cyberpunk um, that sort of decombobulates language, um, the word virus that Burroughs would call it, um, hijacks it and gives us place for other forces to come through that are, you know, quite literally his and other people's. That's something to be affirmed. That's what Deleuze and Guattari talk about. Where Land kind of ends up is that he kind of doesn't, he, it seems to lose track of how he is subsumed back into word virus, but just becomes another agent for it. Um, uh, which, you know, I think is, it, it's it, it's not as, yeah, so... Uh, it's it's a hard thing to kind of chart that trajectory, but I guess that's kind of the thing, right? It's that I was thinking while you were talking, and you used the example of photography of like these these snapshots. I think this is partly where my head's at in general outside of the podcast at the moment. But um, I feel like there's something in how so Deleuze on his own talks about um, uh, a life, his sort of arguments about imminence, and I guess in our show notes we can just point listeners to previous episodes we've talked about all this at length i don't want to rehash any of those conversations um because we'll be here all night but um there's a sense that capitalism proceeds by taking presenting us with snapshots this is uh, which always try and capture the present um and soon enough we come to realize that you know there's there's a kind of everything that we think about the world has already passed and in that past we think we identify an, an anterior future um so in the in without getting too bogged down in photographic theory, like you have someone like Roland Barthes talks about photography in that way, um, where you can capture the present, but everyone's aware that the result of any photograph of a person is their forthcoming death. Death is everywhere in photography, um, and it's as if sort of land maybe focuses in on that and kind of enjoys the the the, the sort of impersonalization that might result that frees us from representation an appearance that capitalism insists upon um, and allows us to, you know, become something else. Um, but as Deleuze writes, that happens in between the snapshots. You know, what photography can never capture is life, the vitality of life itself. And I think that's what Mark talks about in this essay where he sort of says that it's Deleuze and Guattari stripped of its Bergsonian vitalism. Um, I think what Land kind of does then in kind of going a bit too far that way, he sort of, he goes so far into this Strat the strategic impersonalization of getting out of the face, like we talked about, um, or I talked about recently on the Zero Books podcast elsewhere, and I think we've talked about a few times as well. Um, it kind of overshoots that almost and ends up back in just being an avatar for capital. Whereas, as if I, I was talking, this is the thing that I always talk about when people bring up the, you know, the we think about Land Nick Land's Twitter accounts that he's now so famous for. People sometimes forget or even don't know that he had four of them. Um, but everyone now sort of remember, knows what out, who Outsideness is on Twitter. Um, but I always think of it as like that film, The Mask with Jim Carrey. And Land sort of used to play on Twitter and try on these different masks that each had, seemed to have a different ideological viewpoint. And at some point, the Outsideness mask just stuck. And now it's kind of in, it's, there's, there's no sort of separating between the avatar and the, and the person itself in, in that kind of sort of reactionary way that he's talking about, right? With avatar, where, you know, that this, this escape into another place um, through this v, proto VR avatar thing is then adopted wholesale, even despite its sort of disconnect from 
or this this assumption that it's somehow outside of a totalizing structure. It's not. You're just subsumed back into it, um, which I suppose is the is the is the, the the presumed plot of the Avatar sequel that's yet to arrive. Right. That what happens for this revolutionary outcrop that 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 adopts the fully adopts and sort of seals itself within the Avatar of the primitive, and how does that revolutionary story keep you know progress? Um, I think that the fact that that film has been stuck in develop, 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 developmental hell, just like my sentences, um, <laughs> uh, you know, is probably a quite fitting metaphor for where that story can only ever cash out. It's where lands has cashed out, but yeah, not fishes, I don't think, anyway. Not when where he went from here, at least. Hmm. Yeah, I think if we continue onward, what we get to sort of like at the end here really is this um, this kind of like statement of what the accelerationist, for want of a better word, cause is, or what it's like key or a key acknowledgement of of left accelerationism, which is that. Um, well, I remember. Cap- I just I was thinking maybe we reiterate oh. the question right that Mark has here. Yes. Which is probably listeners might also be wondering is what does any of this have to do with the left? <laughs> yes, <laughs> well, indeed, well, indeed, this is the thing, and and where we do, where we come back into leftist politics is is the extent to which what the point of this essay is almost is saying that sort of like it, it, it is shouting tactics, comrades, tactics. We need better ones, um, or, or rather, we need strategy rather than tactics. Specifically, because what I mean, you know, what he states here is something that is like blindingly obvious, um, which is that capitalism doesn't actually. Um, equate innovation and often is an active deterrent to innovation it tends to what you know its tendencies towards the formation of monopolies its tendency to its resistance to often it's a resistance towards developing new technologies um as often as at least at least as often as it does end up developing them and the way that and this is the thing with like (laughs) Like one of the reasons why, like I find Elon Musk in particular so absolutely frustrating, is because like if nothing else, Amazon does like do things, you know, like you get like you you get things out of Amazon, like you get books and stuff delivered off of them. Um, but with Musk, like sort of like was cars that people can't afford and the occasional rocket ship. And it's very difficult to think of stuff like what else actually like comes from this though like in real terms yeah, those and cars that people can't afford they also fall apart and their batteries <laughs> explode when they crash don't forget that it's very they're so important bad. they're so bad they're so bad <laughs> and when he just reinvented tunnels when he was trying to do the hyperloop thing and it's just a less efficient tunnel because only because you have to go single file down it and there's no way out if it ca- as a car catches fire you just all die <laughs> that's the that's the word in here that i think that i really like one of mark's kind of subtle neologisms that he coined for like defining that process of stagflation mm-hmm. um that the stagnancy of this promised future in its total inefficacy well, just, that, like, that isn't a, sorry actually that isn't a that isn't a, a, a coinage of his that is a, that oh, is a, not a, no i'm afraid that is just that's just a word oh is it yeah stagflation is a word yeah it refers to i thought it was a to, pun that well it is a, well, well there's a well, it is a pun, but well, no, that's not a pun. It's a what is it? What is it? It's a pun. Is it a pun that a pun became time? real? 
It's a well. It, it refers to. It refers to a complicated thing to do with how inflation works. Oh, <laughs> well, there you go. I'm showing my lack of stagflation is characterized by slow economic growth and relatively high unemployment or economic stagnation, which is at the same time accompanied by rising prices. So, oh, so okay. we are, we are 100 percent within a, a yeah. We, it is happening period. right now, yeah. and yeah. like because it was like famously like this great stagflation of the 70s. You know, sort of like was one of the many many things that people that that people remember and blame on jeremy corbyn retroactively somehow um because <laughs> he's the terminator of bad things in uk politics <laughs> making them happen retroactively there was something we're seeing here recently and it's just like oh like the pure death driver of it is beautiful it's loads of sort because of, you know sort of like we're in the midst of an energy crisis here uh due to sort of, not just because of the, the of the the war in ukraine but also just all sort of the stuff that was kicking off in january around sort of the energy prices and and so on um has well, resulted in the predictable spectacle of 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 boomers like saying so oh back in my day we had like one shower a month we were happy for it thank you very much it's sort of like we had cardboard for breakfast and we had muddy water for dinner it was great thank you very much most of my siblings did die though um like and it just sort of like as sort of the response to people saying this is just objectively bad this is a bad thing that is happening um and does feel very, you know, just it just feels just very much like this, and it is this sort of like weird sort of like because <laughs> people sort of insisting sort of like oh no, but now, now apparently it's good that we're sliding back into the seventies, even though that's exactly the thing they all accuse Jamie Corbyn of wanting to do anyway. Um, but moving on, yes. So, what does any of this have to do with the left? And I think, in a certain sense, when it comes to what the accelerationist like call is is to to borrow a phrase from Owen Hathaway is really it's quite I think it could be simply defined as it is a militant modernism it is a, a in some ways it is a, a rallying a rallying cry to reclaim the legacy of of modernism with which you know was not you know the clues in the name is not is nothing to do with the primitive is nothing to do with primitivism but it is it's 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 it, it, it is it is a sense that like what we need is not less technology we need more of it and it needs to be better because the problem is never the tech the problem is never the tractor the problem is always the factory the circum you know this is what actual what an actual anti-capitalism is is it is reckoning with again the with relations of production not with and, and the circumstances of production and what labor relationships actually are um rather than this again sort of like treating technology as a standing quantity which simply means bad um of, of and and what and because there's a point where like at, the, at towards the beginning of this essay where where fisher says um let me find it actually because he he puts it really really nicely um here we go um Hands up who wants to give up their anonymous suburbs and pubs and return to the organic mud of the peasantry. Hands up, that is to say, all those who really want to return to pre-capitalist territorialities, families and villages. Hands up, furthermore, those who really believe that these desires for a restored organic wholeness are extrinsic to late capitalist culture rather than fully incorporated components of the capitalist libidinal infrastructure. That the task you know the task of what of what it is that's being accelerated here is 
te- is technology is is recognition of the necessity of further and more meaningful and more widespread technological innovation and the recognition that i mean and this is there's plenty of plenty of points of the left to criticize all of this from in good faith but this is at least sort of like what the like the, the propulsive force behind like the left accelerationist movement was, moment was was the sense the recognition that we can't get those things we don't with within capitalism because capitalism has no interest in that kind of actual meaningful human oriented radical um development and transformation and technological transformation because um yeah like i also kind of pulled out that same quote sean um and one thing that it put me in mind of is yeah like here it seems like fisher is definitely kind of speaking out against any sort of primitivism but what i would have liked to like i wonder if he's written elsewhere about luddism because you see like there's uh, been a re um i guess a the word escapes me, but people have been reassessing um, Luddism. Um, so I think traditionally the understanding of it was that Luddites were anti-technology, but actually they they were they were for technology. They just wanted to have the time to understand the technology and understand the impacts it was going to have on real people's real lives. Um, and I think that is definitely like that's a useful sort of um, concept to keep in mind when you're considering left accelerationism. It's not about getting rid of all this technology and all these, um, you know, all these things that we've built. It's about like, you know, questioning, you know, like considering like facial, facial recognition, facial recognition technology. Like a lot of activists are pushing back against that because it is just there to, you know, punish, um, people of color basically anywhere that it's like actually used it's that's what's happening with it um so you know like for instance if you took um like amazon's like logistical network is currently like a horrifying place where people have to piss in bottles and shit in their vans and all that sort of thing um but you know under a a socialist uh world order you know, if you expropriated the Amazon logistical network, it could be a very useful tool, um, as long as the people working in it were treated as humans. Um, and I think that's sort of like, yeah, it's something to keep in mind. If you if you ever tempted to go towards the primitivist um, ideas that are being more and more um, spouted, especially in like reactionary and you know fascistic sort of circles, you know, embrace Luddism instead. I think it's got a lot more options for, um, you know actual decent modern living than primitivism does because this is where primitivism always ends up is the in this of the discussion of sort of like what technology do we tame it but like it always feels and and like i know this is like an example that's often brought up against forms of primitivism but it's just the example of the fact that like about i was like about half of everyone in the world needs glasses you know like these don't <laughs> two, out, grow. two out of three on this podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the you know, sort of like we don't, you know, these, you don't get them off, te- off off of trees, do you? Like these are made. Like loads of things happen so that I can have glasses on my face, and a lot of that involves machines, you know. And it's just, and and again, sort of like uh, more importantly, is the fact that um, it often feels that primitivism just sort of like like ends up just saying sort of like, and, and of course, eventually we'll get to the point where just you know everybody with most people with disabilities die off um, because we won't be having any of that. Um, 
and I know that, and I, and you know, I know I'm straw manning here. I'm, cer- I know that I, I'm certain, and I've not read them, but I'm certain they're out there. So, like sophisticated rebuttals from various primitivist groups about you know, this isn't what we're saying, or you know, sort of like no, we're not saying that all technology needs to be ejected or anything like that. But at the same time, he's yeah, are you though? <laughs> you know, um, but the uh, but something I think it, at, at the same time though, like that I do. <laughs> You know, Mark Fisher isn't saying that we shouldn't go for walks out in nature. You know, that's a healthy, good, wholesome thing to do. There's a lot of value. There is, of course, a lot of value in engaging with the natural world. And it it does have restorative powers. It does calm and soothe the weary, capitalised soul. Um, But at the same time, you know when we are out foraging we should be foraging for the as the loose puts it for weapons are around there um i guess it's the one thing i do want to say at least on the point of the because i guess the the one thing that i think is really worth emphasizing here and i think that is what maybe you're touching upon Corey, and talking about ludditeism or luddism or whatever you want to call it um, and it's something that I think is also here in Leotard in a sense, is this sense of, is a sense of um, a kind of proletarian agency or just, you know, everyday, uh, the agency of the everyday person. Because um, I guess the one, uh, the, the one critique of left accelerationism, I think the, the way that you've outlaid it, um, Sean, is it, it, it resonates a lot with what Alex Williams and Nick Cernick were sort of saying in um, Inventing the Future, sort of being the key sort of um, core left accelerationist text. But you only need to look at sort of the responses to something like um, Benjamin Bratton's Revenge of the Real, um, which I think is a more recent, a, a sort of similar version of that updated to now, that kind of slides into the sort of the the, the absolute other side of primitivism, which is a kind of, it's, it's not just pro-technology, it's technocratic. And that's what people don't like about, didn't like about their, about their version of accelerationism, which I don't think is Mark Fisher's. Um, because I guess it's what you get is that when there's a tendency to sort of say we need more technology, we need to accelerate. Because I don't think I don't think it's the acceleration of technology alone. It's that you know that the, the, to to do that is to the problem with that kind of technocratic worldview. I think is that it's uh, it's it becomes a, an argument for for better managing a, a more a, a better managerial version of how we deal with the problems of the present um and i think what we find especially in how that's applied to the coronavirus pandemic is that people you know they get fed up of the whole sort of the supposedly reactionary that people are fed up of experts um but i think what people are fed up with is the is the sort of the false dike another false dichotomy between um sort of being the the ignoramus and the scholar um the expert and the luddites but but actually, what's you know the core of of, of ludditeism is that if um, who knows best how to disrupt the means of production, the person that is used that, that is trained in using it, the people that were able to break down you know it's if to say that the, the people wouldn't I mean I don't know how it literally worked kind of be interested to find out but I don't get the impression that these people just went about smashing up machines I think if you have an awareness of how a machine works you're actually better to you know properly deconstruct it not just in sort of Derridian terms but quite literally you probably you know the, you, you've, you've probably been your, your labor has probably been exposed to build the thing so who better to take it down again um and i think that's more fisher's mode it's it, he kind of steers away from the technocratic version that says more of this kind of thing better sort of 
infrastructure and sort of says, well, yeah, the example of the of the um, Amazon logistical system, um, you know, that the, 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 the absolute oppression of people that work within that system who feel totally sort of rushed off their feet, quite literally, to keep up with demand. But then, you know, who better to set the pace than those people that are doing that work? And I guess that's the thing, you know, with the with with the the success this week of the uh, the the Amazon Union in the US, um, that's I think it's part of that same impetus. It's not to say that more technology or less technology, but actually who's using that technology and who is it used against, and offsetting that balance of power, um, which I guess is something that Mark talks about elsewhere, and it's something that's common to so many different critiques of technology or, or just or not even technology but representation um i was reading laura mulvey this week who's most famous for you know coined the the, the phrase the male gaze um uh and the key part of her essay where she talks about she introduces that term is she sort of ends with the fact that it's not a case of 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 wholly denying um or, or trying to embody the absolute negative image of patriarchy, which you could say primitives are. The, the, the primitivism is, and maybe this is also a straw man, but no, it's the it's the mirror image. It's the negative of capitalism. It's the negative of technological modernity. But no, Mulvey says, you know, if we're going to make a start on deconstructing these things, of, 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 of challenging the way that these things are set up, we have to make use of the tools that patriarchy gives us. Um, so... The, so it's not to say that you know it's how do you hijack the gaze how do you you know uh challenge that power relation and i think that that's kind of what's going on here that needs that often gets lost in conversations about how acceleration is supposed to function it's not more technology not less technology but allowing the right people to hijack the technology that they're using every day and that is also used to exploit them um and mark talks about that in loads of different places you know it's it's the I think he, the, 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 I mean, he quotes in this essay, Terminator vs. Avatar, that classic passage from Andy Oedipus by Dilson Guattari, where it's you know, about accelerating the process. And then there's another essay where Mark writes about um, Ellen Willis for Eflux magazine. Maybe we'll come on to it at some point. But, you know, he sort of lays it out again really succinctly. It's not the case of just accelerating capitalism willy-nilly. You, 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 you find the points of tension and you accelerate the things that fall out of capitalism's grasp or, you know, Again, to call back to that example, the ways that workers themselves have a better better understanding and expertise in that in that technology than perhaps the people that actually own it um, and you know exploit their labour to make them money. Um, yeah, uh, that was a beautifully put, Matt. That was absolutely fascinating. So, um, I'm aware of time. Um, one point that was brought up earlier, which we haven't returned to. Um, Corey, you mentioned right at the beginning you felt there was a connection in the set this essay was drawing a connection between accelerationism and hauntology. I just wondering if you could if we could uh probe that a little bit and then we'll move on to final remarks for this episode. Yeah, well <clears throat> it just comes down to like I guess the um foreclosure of the future or options for the future. Um so one quote that um seemed to be ontological in nature is um if land's cyber futurism can seem out of date it is only in the same sense that jungle and techno are out of date not because they've been superseded by new futurisms but because the future as such has succumbed to retrospection 
and he also um, uh, later, um, capitalism has abandoned the future because it can't deliver it. And that just seems like, um, I guess, uh, Fisher taking you know elements of his uh, ontological thinking and writing, and, and you know just sprinkling sprinkling a little bit of it in here at the end, um, just to to make his points about the like yeah I guess the the failure of um, capitalism to actually genuinely be able to um, continue to progress and to imagine and to create the new that capitalism is actually uh, he calls it an anti market. Um, uh, I just thought that was just a really interesting uh, notion as well. Uh, a simulation of innovation and newness that cloaks inertia and stasis. I think he's he's hit the nail on the head in, right there. Um, and, in, and indeed, just to re, to to use the example of the coronavirus vaccine again, which was hailed as sort of like a well, triumph of capitalism, completely eluding the point that you know. A nor- you know, the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example, or not exclusively that, enormous amounts of money and resources from publicly funded research goes into that, and universities went into none of which are mo- like none of which is just capitalism happening, is it? It's to the extent it's well, state planning, <laughs> you know, central planning and direction and so on. You know, the the idea that um, that, that and again, there's so many there's so many examples of this. You know, it's often been said. You know, what capital like how we end up with like most of the stuff that makes smartphones work was invented like decades ago, and it's just been condensed into a novel way, made more efficient. But none of it is necessarily, none of it is directly like the result of just like entrepreneurial innovation. Nor was the internet famous. You know, like you know, it starts starts off life as like partly military funded communication project. Anyway, anyway. Anyway, on that note, um, yeah, on that final remarks, I think uh, Matt, what are your what are your closing salvos? Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it, I'm, I'm I'm a little bit annoyed at myself that I never noticed that resonance in the essay that you just pointed out, Corey. Um, I can't say really can't I can't really say why because I've just I've literally just written something about Mark's ontology that's coming out later and trying to connect it to accelerationism and i mean i'm, I'm not going to say too much in this but uh, if only because as a closing remark i think that's something that we should definitely explore again in the future um because i guess as, as a quick cliff notes you know accelerationism as a sort of term emerged from a series of blog posts written by alex williams the first one of which was called and no what was it called um uh against hauntology giving up the ghost it was it was meant to be the other side of um, the hauntological moment that was the mid-noughties. Um, but Mark's kind of argument that has never really been elucidated in his books so much as on his blog, and even some of those posts haven't really ever been published anywhere, beyond just still being sat on the internet for anyone to see if he can know how to Google it right. Um, but yeah, the, the, but uh, <clears throat> he developed, I think, a, um, a far closer relationship between the two, that, you know, the the straw men that were constructed against tauntology actually shares a lot in common with accelerationism. And I think that those two quotes you just pulled out are actually the perfect encapsulation of, of how he saw the relationship between the two. Um, that hauntology is kind of the negative vision. And once you've noticed that capitalism's given up on the future and you denaturalize that tendency, accelerationism is the kind of... Um, purposefully kind of inherently inchoate 
response to that. Um, but yeah, that whole tension I think is fascinating and people don't pick up on that often. I didn't even pick on it up in this essay before. So I think that's brilliant. And yeah, something for us, I'd definitely love for us to explore in future. Mm. Uh, Corey, closing remarks? Yeah, I, I think... Um, I do hope we delve further into um, Mark Fisher's like, kind of uh, ideas concerning uh, accelerationism more in the future because I... I feel like I have a decent understanding of it, but not decent enough considering that I, I feel like accelerationism is like the unacknowledged ideology of the present moment. Like it's not that, um, you know, governments and corporations that are, you know, like kind of that have, un, you know, uh, a large sway over the direction that our economy and uh, industries are going are actively accelerationist, but they are behaving in ways that match up with the like Landian accelerationism. Um, you know, this kind of, uh, constant acceleration of the economy, infinite growth, all those sorts of ideas. They those are accelerationist, and we are like captured by those currently. So I think it's really important to understand accelerationism, but also like especially to uh, reject the more reactionary forms of it and look into what uh, Mark Fisher is talking about here and you know other leftist thinkers. So yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully exploring that further. Right, and uh, as for myself, um, I don't have any particular sort of like uh, clo real closing thought uh, that comes to mind beyond, um, again, just restating what a pleasure it was to revisit this essay and what a productive conversation uh, I think we've had tonight. Um, so then, uh, I've been Sean. Um, you can find me. You can find me on Twitter at Horntonaut. Matt, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at Xenogothic on all social media and I blog at xenogothic.com. And Corey, same question. Yep. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at CJ White and my website is CoreyJWhite.com. Great. Um, as ever, thank you for your time, listener. Um, please, I, do, I what do they say? You know, like and subscribe, I guess. Leave comments if you think we said anything particularly interesting and or stupid. Uh, and uh, yes, feel free to get in touch, I guess. If, you know, actually something I might suggest, you know, sort of is um, if there are any particular pieces of writing people might want to hear us try and talk about, feel free to suggest we, may, we will also feel free to ignore if we want or listen, <laughs> depending on our mood. Um, anyway, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I hope that you, um, everybody has a lovely time in general uh, and until the, end of, until the end of all things. Anyway, good night, everybody. <laughs> good night. Bye. Or good morning. Or alternatively, <laughs> good morning. <laughs>